Well, good morning. I was joking with the Sunday school class this morning, and, and I think some of them believe me. I said, this will be my last Sunday. I've been asked to go to Rome and apply for a job. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding, but I think they might have believed me. So I just want to tell you, Sunday school class, it's not true. I'm not, they, don't, they don't take people with, uh, who are married with two kids to be the Pope. And, and uh, 29 years old. They don't do that. They, they, they prefer you be Catholic. So that's not going to happen. Well, anyways, you're in it for a treat this morning because normally I have six pages of notes and now I have nine pages of notes. And so let's just dive right into it. Good morning. We're in the series called Sermon on the Mount and we're just going through the most important sermon that Jesus ever gave and the most important sermon that we have because it literally is this just wealth of teaching on what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes in our lives. And we're in this setting, in this scene right here called the Beatitudes, where Jesus is just starting out. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. And today we get to the section called blessed are the peacemakers, for they We'll, uh, I'm sorry, for, I, I almost went to last week's, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And so we're going to dig into this today. What does this all mean? So today we're exploring this concept of peacemaking, what it means. And I almost think that it's been lost in our culture of what peacemaking is. And we're going to dive into a bunch of different things, but really essentially four different areas of peacemaking. Um, one, between God and man. Two, between man and man. Three, in a world full of violence and in a culture full of violence, how do we make peace? And uh, four, inviting others into a relationship with peace. And so we're just going to dive into this kind of systematically today, maybe a little differently than I normally do it, but there's, this topic is so broad. And it's actually a huge topic in the Bible because when Jesus uh, is talked about, when the Messiah is talked about in, old, in the Old Testament, one of the signs of his coming was peace. And so four more times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about peace. He talks about peace in the midst of situations uh, like when somebody is uh, accosting you or somebody is, is, is uh, butting up against you. He talks about peace with your, your neighbor. He talks about tangibly how you make peace. And he does this four more times through forgiveness through all kinds of different areas. And so this is actually a really huge theme in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a huge theme in the Bible. And so today, we're just going to really knock off a chunk of it, because in the future, we're going to talk about things like loving your enemies. We're going to talk about things like when somebody strikes you on the right cheek. Because Jesus gave really practical, not just advice, but this kind of advice was redemptive because it broke circles of violence. It broke um, these circles of things that would keep happening. And so Jesus actually talked about this quite a bit. And so today we're just going to dive into this idea. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm still uh, <coughs> suffering through cold number two this year. So I'm almost done with that. So there's this uh, basic notion in the Bible that we need to, that I almost bring up in every single sermon, but I don't say, well, there's this basic notion theologically that we all should buy into. But there's this basic notion in theology 
And what giants in theology say is that the overall goal of the Bible is that we look more like Jesus. And so we look at what Jesus did, and, and we begin to follow that. It's called Christ-likeness. It's called holiness in some traditions. In our tradition, it's called holiness. And it's what did Jesus do, and how do we emulate that with our lives? And so a lot of times we'll say, what did God do, and then we should do that. A long time ago, we used to ask the question, what would Jesus do, which is a great question. And there's this... Um, comedian that talks about the WWJD bracelet, and he makes it all funny. But in any case, I won't go into that because I just realized it's probably inappropriate. The rest of his comedy routine is probably inappropriate. But when I heard it, I thought, oh, that's funny. And then I listened to the rest and went, I can't share that in church. Um, Somebody sent me it on YouTube. Anyways, um, we like to ask the question, what would Jesus do? But I think the more important question is, what did Jesus do? We like to say, what would God do about this? But the real important thing is to look at the Bible and say, what did God do? And so that's what we're going to look at today. What did God do? Because we look at what God did, and then we begin to follow that model with our lives. Last week, we talked about organizing our lives around Jesus. We begin to organize our lives around that. Then we're going to begin to get a little further into Christ's likeness. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your iPads, iPhones, you want to look on the screen, go ahead. Isaiah chapter 53 Verses 4 through 9. This is a verse that we typically would look up at Easter because it talks about what the Messiah would have to go through. Keep in mind, this is Old Testament stuff. This is before the birth and coming of Jesus. And so Isaiah simply says this in verses 4 through 9. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we, were considered, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned and gave the wicked and the rich of his, with the rich of his death. Though he had done no violence, nor any deceit in his mouth. So four or five times in this verse is embedded that Jesus died and suffered for us. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He took our transgression. So the junk that's stored up in our lives, he simply took it. His pain on the cross, his death on the cross, the suffering that he took brought us peace somehow. Because we don't have to hold on to the junk anymore. And that's what this Old Testament verse is prophesying, what will happen and what did happen to eventually to Jesus on the cross. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. They're making this point after Jesus died and rose from the dead that Jesus is actually brought peace through his death and resurrection. He actually brought us peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the point the Bible is trying to make here is that we have peace through Jesus. 
We can only know true peace through Jesus for, because of what he did for us on the cross. That's the only way that we can know that. Isaiah 26, 12 is one of the, the chief messianic prophecies. There's a lot of messianic prophecies all through the Old Testament, but this is a very important one. It says, Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accompanied, you have, accom- I'm sorry, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. People and, and theologians and people who were looking for the Messiah said that when the Messiah comes, the mark of his kingdom will be peace. And what a lot of people believed was that meant world peace and that everybody would stop hating on each other and people would stop fighting, there'd be no more war and life would be good. But really what Jesus instituted was this peace, this inner peace that is available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that his kingdom, his people, would be a people of peace, of shalom, of inner peace. Peace not meaning the absence of war, but meaning knowing that you are justified through faith in Jesus. That's the kind of peace that we're talking about. So the big picture here is that God brought us peace through suffering. Peace is a suffering work, isn't it? It's not easy to bring about peace. How many times have you had a fight with your wife or your husband, and then you went, oh, you know what? Let's just fix this real quick. No big deal. Uh, we're not even going to argue or fight about this. You're right. I'm wrong. How many times has that happened? Right? Or has peace in the relationship actually took work and suffering and going over this issue? Chances are, if you had this issue when, when you're dating and you're like, oh, yeah, but it's cute when he farts, you know? in front of me at the dinner table. Trust me, I know from experience it's not cute when you have two little girls who think it's funny at the dinner table. Sorry, that's not, I'm not talking about my life. That's somebody else's life that I'm talking about. It's not me. It's, I have a friend with two little girls. We all have those friends, right? But peace doesn't come easily, right? Desiree never thought it was cute, by the way. I mean, we, we don't just have these disagreements with our spouse or with friends or at work, and, and, and then we just go, oh, we just, it'll work itself out. You know, we don't just do that. It, peace comes through difficult situations. When you have somebody who hurts your family, some, maybe you've been betrayed by a family member, maybe you've had a family member who has hurt your family, it doesn't just work itself out. It takes work, Right? When you've had major problems or trust issues in marriage, it doesn't just work itself out. There's a lot of pain and suffering that goes in to making that peace. And so I think the number one thing that I take from this verse in Isaiah and all these other verses is that we only know peace, true peace with God through Jesus' suffering. And that peace itself for us will not just come easily, but it will take more suffering. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? Okay. And so between God and man, it it took pain, it took suffering for us to find peace. So now between man and man. Now we deal with this issue all the time because God made peace with us. He wants us to go make peace with the world to show the world what God looks like. Does that, that make sense, right? We have to show the world what God looks like by by doing what God did for us with the world. And so we are called to make peace and be peacemakers, like what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, with other men and women around us. 
And I'm sure this isn't relevant to all of you because I'm sure none of you live in conflict with anybody. And you guys are probably like, yeah, I've got a friend that lives in conflict, but I don't. I'm good. So this is all for your friends that live in conflict and not, not you. So take good notes. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul is talking uh, to these churches that he's helped set up. And one of the things that he says to him is, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I think Paul was even referring to the pain that there is in restoring relationships, the pain in making peace with relationships. Carry each other's burdens. How does that look? That sounds tough. Now, when, when you're restoring somebody and they have this burden that you carry with them, how much pain does that bring in the relationship? How much suffering does that bring? I remember dealing with a, child, or an, uh, a, a student one time with drug issues and parents and and, and the parents were trying to walk alongside, and, and eventually they got to the point where they had to kick the kid out of the house. But for the longest time, they were trying to carry this burden, carry this burden, and trying to restore him to the family. But they were essentially enabling rather than restoring. And sometimes we tend to do that. Instead of making more peace, we actually make things worse through enabling. Because God actually tells us that we're supposed to rebuke our brothers and sisters, right? And we, we think about that, the word rebuke, we don't think that that's going to bring peace with people because we're telling them they're wrong, right? That doesn't sound right, that it's going to actually bring peace. But the idea is that you only rebuke your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you carry, if you're willing to rebuke them, you have to be willing to carry the burden with them. You have to be willing to walk the road with them and make peace with them so that they're restored. A lot of times we don't rebuke to restore. We rebuke because we want to be right. Now raise your hand if you, I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand if you've ever done that. <sighs> we have to carry our burdens and our, each other's burdens. And in this way, when we rebuke to restore, we come and we find peace. When we rebuke because we just simply need to be right or have it our way, we bring judgment. So Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. They were having this issue where um, a guy in the church uh, ended up sleeping with his stepmother. I know, sounds pretty bad. Well, what happened in that time was when fathers died, or when, when uh, husbands got a new wife, sometimes their wife would die, and they would remarry. Well, they would remarry younger so that they could have more children. They wouldn't remarry someone older. They'd remarry someone younger. And so likely what happened was that this man um, who slept with his stepmother was roughly around the same age. And Paul just blasts this church because he says, you caught them and yet you didn't do anything about it. And, and he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy 
or an idolater or a swindler, a drunkard or a swindler, or a slanderer or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. See, Paul here is even trying to classify and clarify for the church that he doesn't mean the world, that we're to rebuke brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not to rebuke the world because they don't live by the same standards. The world doesn't follow the Bible. You know, we know that. I mean, you look at elections, you look at media, you look at all these different things, and we know that the world isn't saying, well, you know, the Bible says that we shouldn't do this, and so maybe we we should go a different direction. No, the church is saying that, right? But a lot of times we want to apply and impose ethics on people that don't believe that. And it's okay if we want to share the gospel. And it's okay if we want to do all that. But if we judge them, what Paul is basically saying is, no wonder. No wonder the, the, the world's having a hard time with you because he's saying don't associate with people that call themselves a brother or sister and act differently. Not at all meaning the people of this world. And so a lot of times we want to rebuke the world. But where the Bible never says that we should do that, the Bible says that we ought to be ambassadors to our world, Right? not rebukers of it. Now, I know saying things like this is dangerous because it gets you in trouble in, in, in Christian circles. It gets you in trouble to say things like I just said because people say, well, shouldn't you just be in culture and, and shouldn't you, you know, lead other people to Jesus? Well, of course you should. But the Bible never says shove our ideals down the throats of other people. It says to love them and share with them, and make disciples of them. And a lot of times, when we rebuke the world, it sounds a lot like judgment, and we lose an audience. Does that make sense? Okay. But when we rebuke brothers and sisters in Christ, it is for restoration and peace. But when Christians rebuke the world for saying, oh, you do this, and it's not right, well, of course it isn't right. Of course. Nobody... And I, I don't think there's any Christians that would say, oh yeah, abortion's totally right on. No one's going to say that. But when, when, when we rebuke that and say, see, you're evil, it's not for restoration purposes. It's for judgment. And then we lose our audience with that community. Does that make sense? So my point in all of this is that one of these is a way to make peace and one of these is a way to make war. It's, you kind of look at these different communities that hate the Christian church, and it's no wonder why, because we did the exact opposite of what Paul has said. I'm not saying we as in you and me in this church, but, but the Christian church has done the exact opposite of what Paul has said. Instead of saying, no, don't judge the world, judge the people who call themselves Christians. The Bible says we are supposed to judge, Right? Just each other. We're supposed to hold each other accountable and do this for restoration and do this for, for God's kingdom, not for our own personal ambitions. And so we simply sound like we're war-making with the rest of the world rather than peace-making. Does that make sense? It's a good spot for an amen if anybody wanted one, but Malcolm's not here today, so, <laughs> so we'll have to ordain one of you as a Malcolm. But when we judge the world, we speak the language of the world. Does that make sense? When we judge the world, we speak the language 
of the world. So in a world where Christians and non-Christians don't speak the same language, what happens? What do we do? We've got a world that's full of violence. We have a world that's full of problems. We have a world that's full of these gun issues that keep happening over and over and over again. And what do we do? Oh, by the way, later in the message, um, Jesus actually solves the issue of gun violence, but it won't be in a way that anybody likes. I promise you that. Um, but in a world full of violence, what happens? The American, according to the American Psychological Association, by the time the average child watches uh, two to four hours of TV a day, by the time they reach fifth grade, they will have seen, witnessed 8,000 murders, 100,000 acts of violence. This is powerful conditioning. So if we're called to be peacemakers, one of the things we need to do is look at our society. If we're called to be peacemakers, we have to look at our society, at the implications of it. And the reason why I spent so much time saying we don't judge society, but we bring truth into it, is because Jesus never stood there and just condemned and condemned and condemned without giving something better. And here Jesus gives us something better for society. And so let's get into this. There's so many, uh, again, uh, by the time an average uh, child watches two to four hours of TV a day, they would have witnessed 8,000 murders, 100,000 acts of violence. Studies repeatedly show that this kind of exposure can lead to aggression later in life. And you know what's funny is that the same people who try and persuade us that, that that's not true, that that doesn't have any impact on the way that your kids think and live, are the same people who spend billions of dollars trying to sell you peanut butter, trying to sell you kids games, trying to sell you other things. And in the advertising industry, they spend billions of dollars on media to try and get you to watch their program. And they go, oh, no, that's, it won't get you to do anything. It's not powerful conditioning at all. Yeah, right. They know that this kind of stuff has an impact in the lives of our kids and in our lives. So all this to say, this is a powerful act of conditioning. So all this also to say, when we forego our peacemaking hat and we simply pronounce judgment, what we're doing is we're speaking to the world in a way that they understand in a militant way. So how did the earliest Christians deal with this? The earliest Christians had to respond to a world full of violence. I mean, we're saying that we have a violent culture now. Man, you should have lived in the first century under the Roman rule in in Palestine. It would have been insane. So here's what happened. 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And we tend to gloss over that fact. But the idea isn't just that they brought some bulldozers in and beep, 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 you know, just bulldoze it over. That's not what happened. This was a brutal campaign of systematic killing, a brutal campaign of starvation, a brutal campaign of, of making people fight each other and, and, I mean, executions in the worst type of way. You would have thought, I mean, if you read actually Josephus's account of what happened, you would think that they're talking about end of times type stuff that's going on there because it was so brutal. So how did the early Christians respond to this? The earliest Christians, they were, there were two big groups at this time in Palestine. There were Jews, Orthodox, and Christian Jews. The Orthodox Jews decided we're not going down without a fight, and they fought, and they died. And then they, a, a group went out to Masada and held out in Masada, and they fought again, and they died. Husbands, wives, children died. 
the early Christians said, we're simply going to be taken captive because we realize there's nothing that we could do to go up against these people. And what they began to do is they began to love their enemy. And this was strange for the Romans, but the Romans took them and they said, you know, they'll be our slaves. But they began to love their enemy and then they began to, to um, show love for each other. Then they began to bless them and, and serve these troops. And then slowly over time, guess what happened? Roman soldiers begin, like there's a guy named Tertullian where this happened to him. He's an early church father. He was a Roman soldier. And he found the love of Jesus through a Christian that, that loved his enemy. So what happened was Christianity began to spread among the troops. People began to put their weapons down. People began to change because of the early influence of these early Christians who said, we realize we can't fight against you, so we'll just go with you. Just take us as prisoners. And early, early on, the world began to change because people said, we have to be peacemakers in this situation. We have to take the call of Jesus seriously here and be peacemakers. That's not an easy call, even in our world today. Again, there's suffering involved in this. That's why it's not the most popular message to give. Go out and make peace and suffer for Jesus. Yeah, right. Are you crazy? Better get back to these nine pages of notes. So the earliest Christians began to reject their violent world and live peaceably among their neighbors and amongst their captors. And they became the earliest evangelists. So what they began to do is invite other people to Jesus. Um, one of the ways that, that John, the, the early apostle, said, uh, or the beloved disciple, he made it a point that the, the battle between good and evil has already been fought and won. And what we're called to do in this battle is live like Jesus did. And that call sounds great until you realize what Jesus did was die. <laughs> right? And rise again. But John made the point to his earliest disciples that we're called to live like Jesus did, and a victory actually would be in martyrdom. And many Christians were martyred, and many became Christians because of the martyred. So what do we do in our world with all this, in our culture with all of this? How do, we re, re, how do we relate that we want to invite others into relationships with peace and not judge the world, but invite them into our world? How do we do that? That's a difficult question. To be peacemakers with fellow Christians, we rebuke, we restore. We're willing to walk down that road of restoration. So how do we make peace with the world that's not even at peace with itself? I think 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 sheds some light on this. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The God was reconciling the world to himself in the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God... We're making his appeal through us. Let me say that line again, just in case you missed its power. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, 
as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become to know the righteousness of God. We might become, I'm sorry, the righteousness of God. So Paul is making the point to the Corinthian church here that God is giving us the ministry of reconciliation. So we're out there to be reconcilers, restoring relationships, first to God, then to others. And the only really way that we could do this is through Christ's death on the cross who brought us peace. And now we're Jesus' ambassadors, and now we are making an appeal as though God is making the appeal through us. We should never be afraid of evangelism. We should never be afraid of telling our story to others. Because it's as if God is making his appeal to the people through you. should never be afraid of that kind of stuff. But the way that we reconcile with a violent world is we bring Jesus into it. Um, C.S. Lewis was once asked, how would you defend Jesus? And he said, the same way I'd defend a lion. I'd let him out of its cage. And I think that that is what the church needs to do in America here. We need to let Jesus out of his uh, proverbial cage and into this world that needs him so desperately. We invite them to get to know Jesus. If you've been redeemed, that means that you have peace and can start living in peace with others. But the main way, one of the big ways that people know that you're a Christian is that you've got this peace that surpasses understanding. In other words, people go, I can't figure it out. What's different about you? Why are you so peaceful? Because it's something that God has given because he's taken away the junk. Every Christian is called to be a peacemaker in the ministry of reconciliation. So I normally play my political cards close to the chest. I was a political science major in college. And one of the things, I'm going to just let something out of the bag here. One of the things that I realized is it didn't matter what side of the fence I fell on. (laughs) That people were just going to go, I'm talking politicians, were going to just go out for their own gain. And so I'm going to try and figure out what Jesus wants me to do. And sometimes that falls on this side, sometimes that falls on that side, and I don't even know. So, So I'm going to tell you what political party I'm registered with. You ready? Take notes. I'm independent. Yep. I just, I, doesn't even really matter to me. Mainly because I want to follow Jesus. And, and sometimes what, what people say on the left or the right, it just, it's not even what Jesus would say. Somehow we've gotten into a dialogue in our country where there's only two ways. But Jesus had this great third way called peacemaking that we tend to forget about. It doesn't fit within the right. It doesn't fit within the left. It doesn't even fit in the current debate. So if I was standing before Congress, and the reason why I register as an independent is because I want to try and follow Jesus' third way. It has nothing to do with both sides. It was, it, I have this really um, silly idea that politicians are going to come and ask me what to do, right? And they wouldn't do that if I was registered in a certain party. It's ridiculous, right? But maybe they will. Yes, it is ridiculous. But maybe they will. Well, they already know they're going to get the Republican vote on the Republican side. And on the Democrats, they already know they're going to get the Democratic vote, right? So why not be an independent and have them come to me? No? Okay. Dumb idea. But I've got this dream that I'm standing in front of Congress and they're asking me, Pastor Dave, 
What should we do about the current gun violence issue? What should we do about all this? And, and as I, um, you got to understand that as a kid, I really wanted to be a politician. I really, I mean, I gave my, um, my acceptance speech for the nomination of presidency in the bathroom mirror of my house numerous times. Um, <laughs> so I've got this fantasy that I'm standing in front of Congress and they're saying, Pastor Dave, what should we do? And I would just simply respond by saying, well, guys, 51.3% uh, of our nation is considered Protestant. 23.9% is considered Roman Catholic. And so I would just say that that probably means that 75.2%, I could use a calculator, 75.2% of our country professes that they at least believe in, in Jesus. And probably the numbers are a little bit lower. But what if 75% of our country were released to be peacemakers in our culture? We're released to be reconcilers of other people. We're called to bring people together in conversation. And, and these were like kitchen table chats. What if, what if even just our church was called to be a peacemaker in its community? When a neighbor has a dispute, you bring over a soda and say, hey, let's, let's chat about this. Let's figure this out. There's a different way. What if, what if 75% of our country started thinking this way? And they would say, but what about people actively serving the military? I would say, absolutely. Then that just means they're going to find conflict faster. Let's, let's get them to be peacemakers as well. I commissioned 75% of us to go into the urban poor communities where kids are likely to join a gang because there's no family influence. And I'd commissioned some of these 75% who are gifted to be mentors to people in the urban poor communities. I was talking with this great guy named Jeff Carr who for a long time was in, in charge of Los Angeles' gang prevention program. And you know what they did? They simply took kids who were fatherless and they paired them with mentors. And that had a powerful effect on whether or not a kid joined a gang. Powerful effect. So what if we took where violence is happening the most in urban uh, poor areas, what if we took people who knew how to be men and knew how to be fathers to go into that community and start raising up leaders? What if that began to happen? I know it's crazy, and I know Congress would probably laugh a little bit at me, but I would keep going. I would say, what if we took some of the 75% and train them to be conflict resolution people and de-escalators of conflict, and we gave them tools to solve domestic conflicts, conflicts between husbands and wives, and, and they could be neighborhood peacemakers, almost like the neighborhood watch, but just neighborhood peacemakers. Then I'd take some of the 75% who are skilled and trained in mental health, and I would, I would ask them to donate some of their time to, to some of these people who have, have mental problems that they can't afford treatment. I would ask them to donate some of their time to that. And then I would take some of the really solid 75% who were, who were so creative and, and so brilliant, and I would send them to Hollywood. I would send them to make movies and TV shows about redemption. I would send them to write a better narrative and a better story for our world. I would send them to Hollywood. And then I would take some 75%, send them to the darkest corners of this country, to Wall Street, to brothels, to crack houses, places where gangs run the street, places where industry has moved out. Seems like there's no hope. And I would commission them as evangelists to share with other people the peace that was actually brought through suffering and the peace that they could have because of the suffering 
of Jesus Christ. And then Congress would say, but Pastor Dave, we've got to raise taxes to pay for all this stuff. And I would simply respond, you can't pay someone enough who is called by God. This would all be spare time and volunteer work. And then Congress would cheer and, and want to make me a king or something. I don't know. And, and they, they would send me to Rome probably. I don't know what they would do. People would, who were called to support this, uh, with this calling, uh, people would, would, would work to support their calling in this. We would borrow a line from Martin Luther King's life, and we would say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will. We shall continue to love you. Our, our church would adopt that saying, and that's what we would do. Churches across the world would adopt that saying, that we'll match your, your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to take it. We'll just continue to love you. Because peace comes through suffering. And I imagine Congress would, cheering for my plans, would give me unanimous approval and, and say, go tell all the churches. And then I'd go to a church and get laughed at and kicked out, right? I think we have a tendency to look at peacemaking suspiciously. Like there's some kind of other motive or some kind of other thing. It's a Republican or a Democrat thing. But it's really a following Jesus thing. Peacemaking in your context is really a following Jesus thing. But it's one of those things that it's almost like there's a line drawn. And it's like once you step into peacemaking, life becomes different. You start to suffer. It starts to become difficult. You start to recognize conflict and you start to go, okay, how do we de-escalate and take this conflict down so it doesn't become something bigger? How do we restore people in the midst of this conflict? How do we bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus in the midst of this conflict? If you're not peacemaking, you're, not, you're probably not in conflict and you're in a lot safer spot in life. So simply today, before you pledge allegiance to country and political parties and all that stuff, remember that our call to serve God, our call to follow Jesus, is steeped in, in, and was bought with a price and is steeped in this mandate of living peaceably with others. What does it mean that a peacemaker will become known as a son of God? Because at the end of this beatitude it says, peacemakers will be called sons of God. Because I think, you know, when somebody says, Emma really looks like you when she does that. Lucy really reminds me of you when she does this. Dave, you really remind me of Mark, my dad, when you do this. Or I say, Dad, you look just like Grandpa right now. When you begin to be a peacemaker, people will go, there's something different about you. You look just like your heavenly father right now. Let's pray. Jesus, peacemaking we know is just steeped in suffering. God, it's not something that, that I mean, I even think about it. it, it, it and a lot of times it means to be a peacemaker. We've got to go into conflict. And God, that seems tough. God, this is a tough message for me to give. And it's an even tougher one to live out. But God, would you lead us and direct us to make peace with others at all costs? And in so, not just for the sake of there being no argument, 
but God, would people come to know you because we've made peace with others? Father, right now I pray for each and every person who is out there making peace at all costs, for police officers, for our first responders who are trying to make peace and keep it. Would you be with them today? God, for those of us here who are willing to take that call, who are willing to take your challenge, God, would you move us to even newer and greater depths in our walk with you? Father, though we might suffer, would you lead us in making peace with our world, causing restoration and bringing about change? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.